Hey Legends, welcome back to 2022 of the EDGM Podcast. Woohoo! We are back, we are pumped, and we are ready to go for 2022. I've got heaps of stuff in store for you for 2022. You're going to absolutely love it. I'm talking to some amazing people all around Australia. So thank you, first of all, for everyone who listened in 2021. Um, if you want to stay up to date with the EDGM Podcast, hit up my Instagram, EDGM underscore podcast. Make sure you hit me up a message. Tell me who you are and where you're working. Um, if you're a paramedic, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, I really want to find out where you're working in relation to um, emergency services. Um, or even if you're working in other areas, um, I'd love to hear about it as well. Um, this podcast wouldn't be possible without you guys listening. Um, so thank you to everyone who listened in 2021. Thanks for your feedback. Um, this year, I'm going to try and lift up the game a bit, um, put out some more episodes um, I really want to try and create um, some stories as well, patient stories. So they'll be coming out um, as well this year. Just for everyone out there who wants to know what I'm covering this year, some topics that I'm running through this year. I'm covering DKA. We're covering shock. We're going to cover some military trauma. We're going to also cover some patient stories where you're going to hear about a patient's story and also hear about the clinicians who treated that patient. It's going to be awesome. I know you're going to love it. Um, so make sure you subscribe, whether you're subscribing via iTunes, Spotify, or other streaming services, please listen, share it with your friends. Um, let's crack into the episode. This week, I'm chatting to Maddie Reynolds. We're talking about airways, and we're also going to talk about drugs. Let's crack in. You. Welcome to the ED Jam. Um, cool. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I'm yeah thank you. Maddie, um, which I'm frothing about. Um, Maddie, it's awesome to hang out with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sick. Um, I met Maddie in a trauma office um, many years ago. Many, many years ago. Before I had grey hair. Um, <laughs> um, and we're going to get into um, a little bit about airways. Um, Maddie, what do you do? Yeah, so I am now much different to the trauma office, but I'm an anaesthetic registrar. Cool. About three days from starting my third year of training, which awesome. is exciting. Um, yeah, so that's what I do at the moment. Cool. And congratulations are in order. Recently you passed Thank the exam. You. Is that right? Thanks, Benny. <laughs> I yeah. did. Yes, finally. Finally got through the primary exam, which was exciting. Okay. Yeah. One of those hard Feels ones. very good to be on the other side of it. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of study. A lot of study. For all those people out there that have passed exams or that are studying, it's Oh hard. my gosh, yeah. Yep. It's it's a tough time. But anyway. What got you through the exams? Through. What would you go to? Um... Oh, what was my go-to? Um, I guess a lot of study. Yeah. <laughs> Firstly. <laughs> Don't go to anything else. Uh, a very level-headed and calming partner and family, probably. Yeah. Uh, and 
my support dog, the lab out the back, who the, laid we, by my feet constantly <laughs> while I studied. <laughs> we can see an awesome portrait here of your labbie who I've met who is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, looks awesome. Yeah, he's pretty cool. He's cool. Yeah. Gotta have a dog or something, okay? Yeah, through. company. Company is the key. Company is the key. <laughs> yeah. uh, and go-to food. What would you go-to food? Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to be healthy now, so I don't have a go-to food. But we were very keen on a bit of takeaway Mexican during exam time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Not spicy grown, but a bit of spicy Mexican. A bit of spicy Mexican. <laughs> I've avoided Rona like um, the Matrix. I'm always like, mate, I'm loving it. Oh, I don't know how we've gotten through it this far yeah. without. <laughs> it's a matter of time, I think, Benny. But... I know, I know. It's like, you know, avoiding it. <laughs> um, and we're going to get into airways. Um, we do see a lot of airways in the ED. Yeah. And you get called down to them. Um, we're going to go through, I guess, for people, a bit of structure. Um, we're going to go through um, why, who, and how of airways. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, when we intubate patients. Um, some tips and tricks in relation to oxygenating patients. Um, we're also going to go to um, a little bit about ED checklists, um, how you do RSI, yep. rapid sequence yep. induction. We're going to talk a little bit about drugs, a scissors, paper, rock. We're going to talk about rock sucks. Um, <laughs> controversial. It's good to controversial. controversial. Um, and good old propofol and ketamine, which yep. would be really cool. Sounds good. Um, and we're going to add in some cases as well, um, which would be really interesting for people to listen to. Um, special populations, um, a bit about COVID and high BMI patients as well. Yeah, which would be cool. Good. Um, so, Mads, let's go through a little bit about um, airway stuff. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about airway sort of stuff. You've got stuff on a bit about anatomy and physiology. Maybe we'll start Yeah, there. yeah. So I thought, um, I guess this was sort of just more looking at what, what are you looking for and yeah. how are you going to do it? essentially um so obviously i guess we all know we're going to use the laryngoscope we're going to make sure the patient's positioned appropriately um but four good steps Mm -hmm. i think for uh intubating a patient um positioning and preparation so positioning is a biggie i guess we'll talk about that probably a little bit more later Mm -hmm. um but in terms of positioning just very quickly you want the tragus of the ear Mm -hmm. to be sort of in line with the sternal notch which means potentially i guess an extra pillow or a towel things like that to sort of prop the head forward that sniffing the morning air position as they call it (laughs) (laughs) whatever that looks like um and then obviously preparation so you're going to need whatever you're expecting to to be using so whether that be direct laryngoscopy whether you want a c-mac whether you're a bougie or a stylet kind of person whatever you think you're going to need you're going to want to have ready uh second step is you put the the rigoscope blade in and you mm-hmm. need to find the epiglottis okay so first and step for epiglottis. what does it look like like the, if you're trying to uh, yeah good one um it's uh i guess it's a cartilage structure so yeah. uh and it's sort of a u-shaped structure which generally flops over to cover your larynx so yeah. it protects your larynx from food and things going down into your airways um so what you'll do is you'll put your blade in you'll slide it to your back of your tongue because mm-hmm. that's the thing that's going to be most obstructive for us is a tongue and then as you get your laryngoscope into the vollecular or the position behind the back of the tongue, you'll see epiglottis. It sort of just sits in front of you. You can't really miss it once you get down there. Say hello. <laughs> it sort of just <laughs> flops into your view. Um, so then that's our second step. Yep. We've found epiglottis. Third step is we need to then find the larynx. So, and that's normally, as we said, into the vollecular and then you pull upwards and forwards, mm-hmm. which moves the epiglottis and the tongue out of the way. And then you've exposed your larynx, which is essentially the two vocal cords that you're going to look for. Mm-hmm. And then fourth and final step is 
put something through the vocal cords. I love it. <laughs> um, whatever you choose for that to be, whether it be a bougie or you're going to go straight for a tube or whether you've got your stylet in your tube, whatever you need to do, um, and then get that through the cords. So four oh. steps. Love it. That's intubation yeah. in a nutshell. That's Bang, it. Done. Podcast over. <laughs> We're finished. That's all I've got. <laughs> My training is done. Complete. Well done. And you've intubated. <laughs> now... It sounds easy. Those four mm. steps sound great when you explain them in about five minutes. Yeah. However. It's not always that easy. It's not always that easy. Very no. true. I do hear people say sometimes, oh, intubating a piece of cake, cake, I could do it. Yeah. However. Yeah. Not always. Things. Yeah. Not always the, not always the way. Um, mm. And I guess you have to assess your patient yep. before you intubate them to decide whether you think they're going to be difficult or not. Okay. And, you know, there's lots of things that you look for. So Yeah, why would we intubate a patient? I guess that's a, a Yeah, so firstly, nice. yeah, why are we going to do it? Um, and I guess in ED, there's such a broad variety of reasons why you would do that. So, um, a, you know, a trauma patient who's, you know, got multiple injuries or a low GCS or a head injury, um, anyone who can't maintain their own airway for whatever reason, uh, anyone who's, you know, aspirating, regurgitating, things like that, people who you're not able to oxygenate appropriately or you need to ventilate, so respiratory failure um, patients. And then I guess there's also, a, you know, a whole different spectrum, which is sort of the humanitarian reasons or, you know, you need to facilitate scanning or facilitate uh, retrieval or moving yeah. a patient, which um, often patients get intubated for that as well. Um, so there's such a broad spectrum. And I guess um, all of those populations are going to come with their own set of issues yeah. and, um, and whatnot as well. So as easy as it would be for me just to say, oh, this is how you do it. And that's really easy. Unfortunately, it's such an individual and patient based yeah. approach. Which makes it good and scary at the same time. Yeah, well, it yeah. keeps us in a job. So yeah. <laughs> that's the main Everyone thing, right? Everyone up there, we need to chew people. Um, <laughs> but, you <laughs> know, <laughs> if it was as easy as just walking up and putting a tube in and, you know, giving the exact same drugs to every person for yeah. intubation, then, you know, there's no real skill in that, no. is there? Um, so I guess that's what makes it interesting is everyone's so different. Mm. And everyone's anatomy and physiology is very different. It's well. really different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so as I was saying, we sort of, you can predict a difficult airway, I guess not always, we're not always great at it, but mm. there are some things that make patients potentially more difficult than other patients. So, um, you know, a short fire mental distance. So the distance sort of between your chin and your sort of thyroid cartilage, um, is meant to be more than six centimeters. So if you put your four fingers essentially yep. under the chin and you have room between your cartilage and your chin, then you're pretty good. That's more okay. than six centimeters. But anyone with sort of a rec receded jaw or a short jaw can be quite difficult because okay. their larynx is a bit more anterior. Um, so that's a predictor. And that would change the, what you might do during that intubation. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so I would guess depending on how significant that is, you might choose to use a D-blade cool. instead of a normal blade. Or if you're predicting a difficult airway, I guess for us in theatres that intubate patients all the time, we would, for someone who we predicted to be difficult, do things like video laryngoscopy, whereas normally we probably wouldn't do that as a first line. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. And then obviously we do the malum patty, which is just you get your patient to open up their mouth as wide as they can, stick your tongue out. Yep. Um, and then you're looking at the back of their throat to whether you can see uvula and things like that. So in patients that you can't see anything and all you see is sort of soft palate, then that 
they're potentially going to be more difficult than someone that you can see a complete uvula. Yeah. So normally that grades the airway from a one to a four. Yeah, one to a four. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. One being a good. The view, best. Four being, <laughs> four bad, being bad, not bad. very good. Four being, hey Maddie, I think I need you to come down. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, which is good, and I think it's also important to know that some patients don't always require anaesthetics. Um, yeah, for sure. Ha- yeah. However, yeah, you do get called down, also, and when you get called down, it can be a whole big you know storm if that makes sense yeah exactly so um ed obviously do lots and lots of airways without us being there uh we predominantly would do airways in theater Mm -hmm. um but there are you know particular occasions that we would get called to ed to help with an airway and generally speaking unfortunately for us it's normally the patients that are going to be difficult for whatever reason um so an automatic call for us to go down and help with that would be a trauma um some places have a critical head pathway so any patient that's had a head injury we might be called down to to be involved with um i've seen that in Mm -hmm. hospitals that i've worked in um and otherwise it's it's based on whether the ed guys think they need us there as support or whether they're happy to do it on their own yeah so uh you know and that depends on a whole heap of things who's on in ed who's on in anesthetics and what level of everything we've got available in the hospital really yeah what level of experience they have and it's it's interesting isn't i've heard people say before intubation oh i know you're a you know, anesthetic bridge, but do you feel comfortable with this pediatric airway or do you feel comfortable with this? Yeah, exactly. So I think in medicine, hopefully we have the um, courage to say yes or no if we're not happy with it. Yeah, I agree. I think um, obviously, you know, I'm not an anesthetist yet. I'm yeah. still training too. So um, it can be difficult when we get called to ED, you know, in the middle of the night to help out with an airway that ED have found to be difficult or are expecting to be difficult. And then I get there and I'm expecting it to be difficult too. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, I've had experiences where I've gone down to help out and looked at the patient and thought, I'm going to need help with this too. Yeah. Um, in which case, you know, there's, I think it's important that we all recognize that. And, and when we're a little bit out of our depth, pretend, potentially, call someone and get some more help because you can never have too many hands i don't think if if someone's in the room but not being used they can still bounce an idea off exactly right i think uh you know like everything um it's always better to call someone before you attempt to do something and get yourself in a really dangerous situation so for me to go in there not being entirely comfortable try and intubate a patient who we've now paralyzed and i can't do it Mm. if i'm calling my boss at that point in time we're in a big pickle it's too late, yeah. yeah it's too late i needed to call him before i did anything yeah. so um i think you know you learn that the more patients that you see and things that you're involved with is when mm. you need to call but um yeah i don't think anyone would ever be you know ridiculed for getting help no hey, <laughs> yeah. i always found it ridiculed if you haven't asked for help and you needed absolutely it. yeah um that's interesting to talk about so that sort of stuff um we talked about i guess we talked about case by case sort of basis as well, um, induction agents, which we'll get on into a second as well. Um, ED, or just quickly, ED and um, anaesthetics relationship. You know, like, do you find that you often get called um, just to be there for for an intubation if you know it's difficult? Uh, I think. Um, oh, I think like the hospital I work in, we have quite a good you know, a good relationship between uh, us and ED. And I think um, depending on the time of the day, I guess, and the level of support that's going down, I know obviously we, you know, intubate and anaesthetise people every day. That's Mm. what we do. And ED have 
you know, a much broader skill set than that. Um, And so oftentimes we get called to ED to obviously we just jump into the role of being airway because that's what we normally do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if it's during the middle of the day, sometimes ED are happy to have a go with us there as support as well, which can be quite useful or we can do circulation, you know, if, um, if no one's there to do that. So I think, you know, it's all about communicating with the team and the skills that you've got. But yep. but we tend to default into airway, but it doesn't always necessarily no. have to be the case. Yeah, I've had yeah. nurses come down and do drugs. It was actually phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was awesome. Had them all lined up, ready to go. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. I was like, whoa. Oh, there's our OCD. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was really good. Had them all lined up in all, you know, colors. And he's like, oh, do you mind? And the nurses had drawn them up really well. So he's like, oh, gee, I could... You guys are great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Had his little stack of drugs ready to go. Because <laughs> you do more than just tube patients. And then yeah, exactly. Of- yeah. I think, you know, in the team situation, normally that that is just where we end up. Um, but obviously upstairs uh, in theatres, we we do more than that, I guess. Yeah. But um, it's sort of our own private little world in theatres. So yeah. I'm not sure sometimes people understand exactly what we really even do do. But mm. yeah. It's important to know that the environment is very different. A theatre environment to an emergency department environment. Very different. Yeah. In so many ways. Like um, you reach for something that you think is going to be somewhere and it's not there. Or, Mm. you know, in theatres we get very used to working with anaesthetic nurses who we spend all day every day with. And Mm. you get to ED and you're working with someone new, which is always good, obviously. But, you you know, you expect them to do something that the person you worked with that day did. And that might not be the case. So, um yeah every out of you know every experience that you have you're working in a different environment is always tricky for whatever reason and it's not necessarily a bad tricky because i think it always makes us better but it's definitely challenging sometimes yeah Yeah. cool awesome um things to prepare yeah so we talked about um everything being on a case-by-case basis which we'll get to in a second yeah um what things do you like to prepare because we're going to go through preparation yeah as an anesthetic registrar yeah, so I guess um, we're talking about it in ED, obviously. Um, let's say it's a trauma and I've been called there and the patient's normally on their way. So patient's not there yet. Um, normally there'll be an, uh, an airway nurse mm-hmm. that's working with me saying that I defaulted into airway. Like yeah, I always yeah. do. <laughs> I'm doing, we're just doing airway. Okay, um, and, and so I initially like to check that with, I mean, there's lots of acronyms yeah. for this yeah. as well. So, yeah. um, what are the ones that you followed? Like, so like, yeah, yeah. So like, soap me is yeah, a cool. good one. What yeah. So, um, so they do suction, oxygen, yep. airway, yep. and then a double P. So yep. positioning and personnel. So make yep. sure you've got the right people that you need. Cool. Um, medication yes. and equipment. Um, I'll that but we're not doing that. We're doing airway. <laughs> no, not meds. Yeah. That's not me. Um, so things I like to set up are make sure I've got suction. Yep. Uh, make sure my oxygen is attached to whatever I'm planning on delivering oxygen through. So normally yep. a bag mask, a bag valve mask yep. with the uh, Ambu bag. Yep. Um, make sure you've got a ventilator or whatever yeah. you're planning to do after you've tubed this patient available okay. as well. Yep. Um, obviously you need your full monitoring, ECG, blood pressure, SATs. Make sure you've got a CO2 monitor because that's never around. It's always once you actually really need it that you can't find it. So check that that's there initially as well. And working. And working. And then then I check the trolley. So things we want on the trolley are we know we're going to intubate this patient. We make sure we have normally a video laryngoscope in ED as well as just a normal Mac blade if the video doesn't work for whatever reason. 
So we want a tube. So normally standard is like a seven for a female and a size eight for a male. Um, But obviously that varies depending on weight and size and things like that. And then you've got to make sure you've got a couple of tubes. So an eight, an eight and a half, maybe a seven and a half if it's a man. And then you want to back up. So if I can't get a tube in, how am I going to ventilate this patient? So make sure you've got some form of LMA normally. Um, And you make sure you have a face mask. So if all else fails, we can take everything out and try and bag the patient. Um, So that's normally what I check for. And then obviously you need your adjunct. So a bougie or a stylet or whatever you like. I'm a bougie person. So I make sure there's one of those. Um, But that's, yeah, that's generally all of the things that I check for. I guess uh, the nurse will probably have her own set of things that she'd check for as well. But they're generally, you know, you can get by with that normally. Do you keep your adjuncts like your... Goodell's, nasopharyngeals, out ready? Like, do you normally? Um, or are you, everyone's different, like, do you? Is that, everyone's different, yeah. I guess. Good to know you have them, yeah, particularly good. a Goodell. I guess um, in theatres we use Goodell's a lot because often we are bagging patients while we're waiting for them to be paralysed. Okay. Uh, whereas in ED, I guess we do much more rapid sequence, so yep. you're not really bagging the patient no. anyway, but it's always good to have, cool. obviously, as well. Um, and they're normally in the trolley too. Awesome. I love the trolley, the trolley, you know, having everything in a trolley ready to go is always good. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It um, can prompt you to, I guess, to things that you might not necessarily remember in the stress of the moment. But yeah. yeah. And I, we'll talk about checklists in a second. Yeah. Um, is there a sense that like as an anaesthetist, you're not a good anaesthetist if you're using video? Um, I'm sorry. It's a bit touchy. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, like, I, I've had this sense of like they use VL, you know, like, yeah, you know, like like, is there this sense of like you know you're not a real driver if you're driving an automatic? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If you're driving yeah. a manual order, like real, real, real drivers. Drive I guess manual, um, that's probably a very personal thing. Like, yeah. I don't agree. I think um, particularly for me, like I'm not an anaesthetist. Yeah. I'm still training, and yeah. I need to do whatever's safest for me. Yeah. Um, so I have a pretty strict policy, even in theatres with myself, that after hours, so any time that I'm there by myself. Yeah. I use a CMAC um, because I think getting into a position where I've tried to do direct laryngoscopy and I've failed and then I'm sending the anaesthetic nurse out who's the only one there to help me to find a CMAC is just dangerous. Mm. And uh, I think, I don't think you're ever going to be ridiculed for using a video if that's what you think is safest. And I think you would be ridiculed for not doing it in a case when you probably should have. Um, So that's my opinion. I don't, you know, I think it can be difficult either way. Um, You don't always have to look at the screen, I guess, is the thing as well. That's what I was going to raise. I've seen a lot of, like, you know, in ED, I guess we always use VL. Yeah. um, We always use video. But um, it's I've seen people use it but not look at the screen and yeah. just look down the airway yeah. and then tube. And others say the screen's there if I need it, but I'm just gonna. You yeah, know. and I think that's I think that's sort of what I do as a standard, to be honest, yeah. because um, I think it's really good even just in the anaesthetic chart or whatever when you're documenting that you're able to tell the next person how difficult this airway is. So when I have video, like I said, I use it routinely out of hours. um, I will still always look direct. Mm. And if it's difficult, then I look up and have a look on the screen, obviously. But if I get a grade one view direct, I'm like, okay, well, next time the person will know you don't need a video. Like this patient was actually fine to chew. And I think that's really useful. You know, like I'm using it anyway, but it's really useful for the next person. Yeah, it's good. Um, so, yeah, my default would always be to look first before yeah, you look on the screen. I like that idea. It's good. Yeah. And it's good that you've got it there to use, you know. You know. Exactly. I think, yeah. yeah, not having it is always, you know, mm. it's the times that you 
don't have it that you're going to need it, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, bougie or not bougie? You talked about bougie. You're loving bougie. Why, why bougie? I love bougie. I think it's simple, easy to use. I love just how it floats down the air yeah. and, and just kinks up. Yeah, um, look, I'm a bougie person. Um, I don't like a stylet, and yeah. that is, again, a very personal, um, I guess, preference. Yep. Um, but I like a bougie, and I'm pretty happy to use it anytime. Yeah, cool. So I know some people are like, oh, I shouldn't need a bougie for this, and I just think that's silly. Yeah. You know, like we've got all of these things available to us. Why, if, if something's potentially a little bit difficult, why not use it? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. So I like a bougie. But, you know, I've been, (laughs) I've heard stories of surgeons slurring things across the room at people for using bougies when, um, but, but I think that, you know, that's, yeah, that's silly. Again, like it's, we're trying to do the safest thing for the patient. So, um, and it can improve first pass, which is improve the chance of a patient being intubated or not intubated. Yeah. And I think it comes down to your patient as well. Like, um, you know, lots of patients that potentially are going to desaturate really quickly or, you know, a high BMI, so potentially you're going to get a lot of collapse and you really need to get the tube in quickly mm. and be able to ventilate them. I think for some of those patients, you just use a bougie straight yeah. up and just know that you're going to get it in rather yeah. than try and fuss about getting a tube in when sometimes that's a bit more difficult. Mm. But again, it's a, it's a super personal thing, I guess, and 100%. some people will swear by a starlet and will hate a bougie and that's fine too. But I guess uh, it's whatever's safest in your hands. Is... Cool. Um, I like how you said ensure that you've got your CO2 connected as in to ensure placement. Yeah. Um, which was kind of cool. Um, and BVM, and you talked about ventilator getting ready. Um, ED checklists, which we have, which are really good yeah um, and what are ed checklists or have you seen or you've seen ed checklists for intubating patients yeah what are they for what do they help people do yeah so i think the i guess the main utility for a checklist like particularly the intubation checklist yep. that they have in ed and i think icus tend to use them as well is to get everyone on the same page about mm. what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and if it doesn't work how you've planned mm. what the next steps are cool. um so you know there's a tick to make sure we've got everything that we need ready so mm. all of those things that we spoke about we yep. tick them all off and make sure they're all ready and then we say okay so the first time is going to be me using a video laryngoscope to intubate this patient and if i can't do that then i'll try with a bougie and if i fail again then i'm going to come out and put an lma in for example yep. um and then everyone's on the same page that that's what's going to happen yep. um so the whole team have discussed it and then you know it just makes sure everyone's on the same page i guess is the main thing and you're not forgetting anything because obviously the times we're down there it's pretty high stress situation so it's very easy to forget things that you would routinely do every day but in that sort of increased cognitive load 100 percent gone simple simple stuff to even like (laughs) you tube them you've done the bougie you put it railroad the tube your bougie's out and someone goes i don't have my syringe to block my cuff yeah, or something yeah. simple like that. And it's like, that's time wasted because we just haven't gone through that simple. Exactly right. Or where's my tube tie? Or yeah. why haven't I got my Oxylog? You know, yeah. like it's all the little things that you you would just do if you weren't in a high stress sort of environment, but that's not what happens in ED. So it's good to have checklists because it just alleviates all of that need for me to actually think about it. Really. Right. And I've seen it run really well where everyone's quiet. Even people said this is a you know sterile cockpit almost. Be quiet. We're going through the checklist. Bang, 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 bang. And even reminds people that, you know, 
if we fail this, we've got a surgical airway backup or something. That yeah, we, we absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess your plan is a very individualized thing about the patient. So yeah. like, you know, are they unfasted or are they vomiting or, you know, whatever. It's going to change what your plans are going to be. And they talk about the vortex, obviously. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard about the vortex. Heard about but, the vortex. Um, it's just keeping yourself in the green zone. So you just need to be in a safe place. Yep. So whatever's going to keep you in a safe place is going to be the right thing to do mm. essentially do you find that it can there's ego when it comes to intubating patients is there ever a sense of like yeah. i'm doing the airway move over or i'm taking control of this yeah i think um i don't know whether i would call it ego necessarily but i think i mean i've witnessed times when someone's been allocated to an airway yep. um and they obviously feel that that's their role which is fine but i think after you know you've had a couple of goes people i mean we all do it you want to fix the thing that you've not been able to do and like i'm guilty of it too you know like you go upstairs to an epidural and it's difficult and you try three times because you should have been able to get that in and why haven't you been able to get it in whereas sometimes you just need to step away and let someone else have a go Mm. because you know for whatever reason it's not your day you know like and i think um that's a hard I think I think we find that quite hard because we should be able to do it in our own minds how, how did um, you learn that how did you learn to um it's hard harness that? I don't know I don't know whether I can say I've learned it I think it's something that I'm consciously trying to be better at because mm-hmm. I think you know you don't want to be the one who couldn't do something you know we all everyone mm-hmm. in medicine or in nursing or you know in the hospital generally is pretty high achiever or Mm. you know hasn't ever done things that they haven't done well I think is the thing to say so you get to a situation where you can't do something and you continue to try and try and try because you want to do it but I think these types of situations are the types where you need to just step away and say okay I can't do it someone else might be able to and it's going to be safer for the patient if I just let them have a go Mm. do you tell Um, people in that environment that hey I'm going to have this like and that's what that's what checklists help you do hey I'm doing two attempts and after that I'm out or I hey, I'm trying it, yeah. to cannulate three times, and if I don't, we're going for an IO. I think that, yeah, I think you've got to call. I think you're exactly right. I think it's all about calling it. Mm. I think before you even start, you say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to have a go with a bougie, and if I can't get it in, then, you know, yeah, whoever's next to me yeah. is going to have a go. Because by that point in time, I'm flustered. Yeah. I've had two goes, and like they say with everything, your first go should be your best go. Yeah. So if you've done everything right, and I've had a look, and I can't get it, then I think there's no point me just keeping on trying without changing Mm. things. Um, But I think that's something that we all need to be able to do, but I think it's much easier said than done Mm. because I find myself getting in that situation sometimes where I just want to fix the thing that I think I should be able to do. Yeah. Because you do do all your training, you do all your study, you do all the clinical time, you do all your overtime – and then you get to this environment like, I do this every day. I've done this before. Yeah, I can do I can this. this. I can do this. But for whatever reason, you know, we all have an off day. It's like you go to cannulate a patient who's 25 and you could pretty much blow dart a cannula in his <laughs> arm from the door and you miss it, yeah. right? I think that's sort of the thing about, I guess, anesthetics. And I'm sure people find it about other things too. It's so humbling because mm. you think, I've got this. Yeah. And then you go to do something so easy, whether it be a cannula or an art line, and you can't do it. Yeah. And you think, oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, oh, and we all have those days. And I think, I think that's actually probably a really good thing for all of us. Mm. 
I really love the stuff that Mads is raising here in relation to leaving your ego at the door. So often than not, we can work in environments where we just want to solve an issue. And I love how Mads brings this to light, especially in relation to, you know, trying multiple attempts at something. Now, let's be honest here. We all have done that. We've all worked in environments where we've said to our friends or colleagues, just give me one more go. I guarantee I'll get it this time. And if you haven't said that, then I don't think you've worked in those environments because trust me, you've done it. Now, so often or not, we can pick at other people for doing those same things that we've done. It's really important that we remember that we need to have the guts to talk to our colleagues about these situations. That we need to be able to sort of say, hey, you can have two shots and if you fail the next one, that's it. Give me a go. Having that planning and preparation for, you know, not that we're planning to fail, but that we're saying that if we do fail, that we've got to back up. And I think that's really important. Whether you're a nurse, whether you're a paramedic, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a student, we still need to be reminded that we are human and we do make mistakes, that we can have off days. Um, we want to be the best, you know, a bit like Top Gun, we want to come into our workplace and we want to rule it, we want to do the best we can. However, we need to be reminded that we can make mistakes. Also, I think it's really important that we don't bag other people out for failing to do something. Some things I find in you know emergency environments is that sometimes we can eat our own young. What I mean by that is that we just knock people down if they can't do it. And if we can do a better job, then we will brag about it. But I don't think that's the environment that we want to be in. We want to work in environments because we are focused on the patient. I also loved that Mads was talking about the honesty and the realness of having those off days. Um, and I think that's really key to us becoming better clinicians is that we're more super aware of that. I don't think you should beat yourself up over it. I don't think it should be something that brings you down, but I, I think it shows a level of maturity as a clinician as well. So working, rarely are we working by ourselves. Even if you're jumping out of a helicopter, you're working with somebody else. So I think it's really important that we've got each other's back when it comes to this sort of situation. And that in those environments, we can have the guts to step up, but we can also have the guts to step down. And what I mean by that is sometimes we need to take a step back and think, am I doing more harm than good in this situation? And I know there's been times where I've been that person. Um, so I think this is a really good point in this podcast to stop. Maybe stop the podcast and reflect on your own practice. Maybe it's happened this week and think, what am I going to do in order so this situation doesn't happen again? And if it does, I've got someone next to me who can call me out on it. The best people I find in clinical practice are the people that let you watch what they do, that let you give them feedback. Um, if you want to get good at your job, have someone watch you do something and let them give you feedback, especially if they're good at what they do. I tell you what, it's eye-opening. Um, you can have someone say, hey, do you know you contaminated your sterile field? You're like, what? No, I didn't. You know, little things like that. It makes you a better clinician. Um, so I really think it's really important to stop, pause and reflect yourself here. While we're on that topic, what was your hardest day ever as an, as an anesthetic registrar? Oh. Or like, when was the time you were beat down, like, beat down enough where you were like, mm, I don't know if this is what I want to do? Um, I don't know that I've had that in anesthetics. Cool. Um, or I in think. Medicine? Oh, I've definitely had it in medicine. Mm. <laughs> um, I found being a junior really hard. So, intern residency, I didn't enjoy. Um, I think, I, you know, you get 
just worked like crazy and you get no time with your family and you give up weekends and you do all of this stuff and then you are going through all these rotations of things that you don't like doing (laughs) (laughs) you know like I did respiratory which you know is fine and I did aged care and I did surgery and stuff and I knew that I wasn't going to do any of those things Um, and I found that really hard and tough and I thought a lot of times maybe I should just work the perfume counter at David Jones (laughs) because at the end of the day I sit my perfume bottle down and I go home and that's it I don't have to worry about anything Mm. I haven't seen anything at work that I'm gonna stay up all night thinking about Um, and I thought that a lot but then I found anesthetics and it's hard and there's been crappy days where things haven't quite gone right or you know you've been up all night working or whatever where you've thought man this is crap but I genuinely like the work now Mm -hmm. and I think that's the difference what does keep you up at night if you could be honest and say like something that actually makes me think is it the patient that you would want to know what's going on with them or is it the the stress of knowing what I'm going into or is it you know yeah um I think I think it's normally something that I've been a part of. Yeah, cool. So whether that be, you know, like a, you know, for example, when this isn't a case, but, you know, like a young patient who's had a horrific car accident that I've been a part of mm. or, you know, a cesarean where we've delivered a baby that's passed away or, you know, it's stuff like that where um, in the moment you sort of just carry on and do it and then once it's done and you step back, you go, Wow. You know, and then I think you get home and I struggle to sometimes step away from it, which I think, you know, most of us would struggle to do that. But, um, but I think that's the hard part. It's never worrying about what's coming because I think if you do that, you're just going to drive yourself crazy, right? We don't know what's coming. No No one ever knows what's coming, but it's the stuff you've been a part of that maybe didn't go how you wanted, or maybe you've done something that you think you could have done better. Um, I think that's the stuff that gets me the most. Yeah, because we all want to do our best. Hey, we don't Absolutely. want to do a half job. You don't want to do something you've dedicated your life to to do it at 80%. Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, we always do we always do our best, but obviously everything we do has risk. Mm. And we know that there are risks, interestingly, but whenever they happen, it still comes as a surprise or we find that really difficult. Um, and so I think they're the things that are hard. Do you think people know the weight that doctors are under to make clinical decisions? As in like... The weight that they yeah. think about for legalities or even the weight that they have as a, you know, for people's lives? Yeah, I, I don't. Mm. And I think, I think it's really hard. I don't think people understand. I mean, I don't want it to sound like a poor me situation because no, 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 we've all gone through it. But, um, you know, like we give up so much of our time to study, to work, yeah. to, you know, like I've been up at night thinking about, you know, some guy who's had whatever done mm. I think people would be very surprised to hear all of those things yeah. um and unfortunately you know most of the patients that we work with and uh things are really lovely and super appreciative yeah. of what you do which I'm is sorry. great and obviously we don't do it for that um but I think the people who sometimes give us a hard time it's a bit tough because yeah. you just think I don't I don't think people fully understand mm. yeah what we do what we do and how hard this is on us as well but mm. Yeah, as I said, it's um, it's not a poor me situation. No, not, not at all. And I don't think it's um, yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. Um, we're gonna get onto some. We talked about checklists. Um, how and why the RSI 
um, why is it important? Why bother with it? Yeah. I think we kind of covered that a little bit while we were doing RSI. Yeah, I think, look, I think we do, the majority of airways we do in ED are rapid sequence. So RSI, rapid sequence induction, traditionally that's just an intravenous anesthetic agent, whatever Mm. you choose that to be, and an intravenous typically uh, muscle relaxant. And the reason that we're doing it is to really quickly secure an airway. Cool. Um, and traditionally it's a predetermined dose of your drug so that you're not titrating you look at the patient you decide what you're going to give you give it and you tube the patient and it's done you hear a lot about modified rapid sequence and things i think that's probably you know not something that we would typically do in ed really but um but i guess that's that's why we do it yeah and the majority in ed are rapid sequence yeah and generally our patients are put to sleep or we rarely do it awake intubation in the ED. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm exactly. sure they've been done, but I guess the majority of our cases are... Yeah, exactly. Our patients, exactly ...paralyzing right. our patients. Yeah. Um, which brings us... Oh. Ooh, <laughs> which brings us to the, the conversation. <laughs> I was going to actually call the podcast... Um, I was going to call it Sucks um, Rock Probe or something. You know, like just something that... You know, this is paper rock. Um, but Rock and Sucks... Yeah. Um, rocuronium, saxmethonium, yeah. two drugs that we use uh, in the D, and we also use them in anesthetic bays. Yeah. Um, what are they? What are yeah. They? Talk to me about them. Yeah. So they're both muscle relaxants. They both work differently. Mm-hmm. So um, SUX is a depolarizing muscle relaxant, and rocuronium is a non-depolarizing, which just means they work slightly different at the receptor for want of a better explanation without going into too much pharmacology and boring yeah. everyone um, <laughs> um i guess traditionally a rapid sequence is sucks okay um so that that was what it always has been so sucks works very quickly yep. normally you can intubate within about 30 seconds though it's also rapid offset so generally sort of 10 minutes or so and right you're off. you're no longer paralyzed um rock is newer than sucks. Um, How new are we talking? Like in the last. Oh night? no, no, like it's yeah, still not, been around not, for a while. Not, not ancient. Not like not since I started or anything <laughs> like that. But sucks is definitely around before. <laughs> <laughs> um, so rock, I guess I've been talking to my colleagues about this because it's you know it's one of those things that I think is very personal preference. Yep. Do you use sucks? Do you use rock? Yep. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to whatever you're more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So in my hands, I think rock is safer yep. because I use it all the time and I rarely use sucks. So why in the sickest patient that I'm going to intubate, would I use the drug that I never use? Yep. That doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. If you use a high dose of rock, you can get intubating conditions within sort of 45 to 60 seconds. So quickly as well. We're talking one or two per kilo or... Uh, yeah, rocks sort of, so sucks oh, is one to two per kilo and, and rocks rock. about 1.2 oh. milligrams per kilogram. Okay. IV, both of those. Yep. Um, I guess the caveat to that is sucks can be used IM. So in a patient with no access, you can give sucks IM. That makes it a bit useful, but it does come with a whole heap more side effects than rock. Okay. Um, yeah. And we normally can see sucks working fasciculations you see fasciculations if you've yeah not in everyone so i don't know that's necessarily reliable um you look for fasciculations and if you get to 30 seconds and you don't have any then you think it's probably worked (laughs) put the tube in um but for me i would always reach for a high dose rock because i think that's much safer 
And I've been caught out with sucks before. I don't use it often, but I have used it, obviously, multiple times. And on a couple of occasions, I've had patients who were difficult intubations and I've used sucks. And all of the faffing about positioning, getting new blades, getting bougies and whatnot, I found that the sucks has started to wear off by the time we're still trying to secure an airway. So I think I've been burned by it. So I'm not really keen to use it all that much. Um, People will swear by it and will use it for things. What's their general rationale to the people that swear by sucks? Yeah, so I guess firstly, some people are just more comfortable using it. So some people will use it in their daily practice um, still. So those people are obviously comfortable using it, happy to use it. Obviously, it's a little bit quicker. So in the patients that you're really worried about desaturations and things like that, people would reach for sucks because potentially it's going to be faster. And I think I I agree that's a valid sort of point and reason and whatnot. But I think, um, as I said, I've been burned before. So Mm. I'm more of a rock person. Um, But it's a real personal preference thing because I think – you, you get good conditions with both of them mm-hmm. in a pretty similar time frame, yep. except that rock's going to hang around a lot longer than sucks. Okay. So I guess that the only other thing to say about that is that um, sucks is going to wear off quickly, rock isn't. Mm-hmm. So in a patient that you can't intubate, you've got a paralyzed patient that's going to stay paralyzed for a long time. Okay. Um, but now we've got Sugamidex, which is a reversal for rock. Okay. And if you give a high dose of that, that's not a worry. So wow. for all the patient, for all the people that say they use sucks because it wears off, and if you can't intubate a patient, then you're sort of not going to get yourself into that vortex. The argument doesn't really stand anymore because Sugamidex is really widely available. Nice, and you have it in your anaesthetic bed. Yeah, we have it in our trolleys. So it initially was very, very expensive, uh, and now it's much cheaper because it's off patent. <laughs> um, hey, baby. <laughs> so, Thanks for coming. Woo! Um, but but it's awesome. So um, what doses are we using for this? Yeah, so that's the thing. So at the end of our cases, when we've had a patient intubated and paralyzed, we'd use um, two per kilo, two milligrams per kilo. A patient with two twitches on neuromuscular, um, you know, twitches, then we'd use four milligrams per kilogram. And in a patient that you had just given an intubating dose of rock, you would need to use 16 milligrams per kilogram. So it's a lot. So you're needing multiple vials because it's 200 milligrams in a vial. So you're going to need a lot. I've never given it before. Yeah. 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 So um, you're going to need a lot, but it exists and it works really well. You've seen it work. It works great. Yeah. So we use it all the time now in anesthetics, but probably much less so in ED because obviously you don't really want them reversed. No, we want to keep them. We want to grab a second bowl of rock so we can go to CT. Exactly right. Um, (laughs) But but it works well. It works fast, and it's really got pretty minimal in terms of side effects. So you can't. There's not much harm to it as well. Um, So so that makes rock an even better, better choice, choice in my eyes now because yeah. that that's no longer an argument i'm seeing clinicians move more away from succinathone moving more towards rock i think and so it, yeah just if i was to ask a hundred consultants i would say i would think yeah now there'd be a lot more saying they use rock as their first i think so i mean um as i said sucks has heaps more side effects what are some of the side effects that sucks has oh good just one <laughs> no so it's higher you... anaphylaxis yep. than rock though rock has anaphylaxis as well obviously yeah. um it can cause hyperkalemia so um in patients that have had burns or sometimes bad traumas things like that it would not be a good choice mm-hmm. um it causes myalgias it increases intraocular intra 
gastric pressures. Um, it causes, in some people who have got sort of abnormal, um, I guess, alleles that would break down the sucks, it can cause what's called sucks apnea, so they can have prolonged paralysis. Wow. Um, so, and significant bradycardias and arrhythmias as well. So it, you know, it you comes with its risks, yeah, right? Yeah, other so, drugs yeah so i think and and in terms of rock its side effects are i guess very very few um cases of some form of arrhythmia Mm -hmm. but much much less than sucks and anaphylaxis but that's you know yeah so um so i think people are just tending to move away from it a little bit um if i asked my cohort of people that I work with, I yep. think the majority would reach for rock. Cool. Yeah. Have you ever gone for rock and been told by a start, like someone more senior, yeah. that this is maybe more appropriate to use socks in this yeah. in training? So you yeah, know. exactly. You do yep. what the boss wants to do. Um, yep. And I have, and I'm, and you know, I'm happy to use a bit of everything because yep. I think, you know, that helps you decide what works for you and what doesn't work yep. for you and, and whatnot. Um, but, but I guess it just comes back to if I was on my own, which is, I think you need to be, do the thing that's, you know, safer for you, Yeah, 100%. which is rock. And then that makes a good practice. <laughs> rock. 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 <laughs> and that makes it good too, because in the end you're training to become a senior doctor. So you build those uh, skills so that you become more confident as a, as an independent clinician. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You cool. need to be able to make it, make a decision, I guess, and justify why you've done that. Um, which is interesting as well. I like I like how you put that in. Do we give um, these agents before we give other drugs? Like, um, do you? Yeah, just I don't know. It's a, it's a silly <laughs> no, question to ask. No, yeah. no, not a silly question. Um, no, I mean, there's been cases where accidentally it's happened. Yep. Um, but but you would give um, an anesthetic agent, so cool. put the patient to sleep, yep. and then you would give them the muscle relaxant. Cool. Um, so typically a rapid sequence, you would give whatever you were giving for your anesthetic, so ketamine or propofol or whatever, um, put that in and then chase it down with your muscle relaxant. So they're both going to work in a sort of similar amount of time. So you can sort of, um, be relatively assured that the patient will be asleep when they become paralyzed. They are painful. Yeah. 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 Rock particularly is quite painful. painful. Not that I've ever had it, but I've just... No, No, yeah, it it is painful. You sort of see people, um, once it's injected, sort of like just... Either you know scrunching their face a little bit like it yeah. hurts to go in, but um, obviously that's like a short-lived thing, so it, it doesn't hang around. Um, and we'll, let's get on to propofol ketamine. Yeah. Um, I love both drugs in terms of you know using them in different contexts. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of ketamine <laughs> because I've seen it work so well in so many different yeah scenarios, whether it be a little bit just to knock the patient down a little bit to keep them calm yeah to big doses of even im and iv so just i love the drug i think it's a really it is a good drug i agree yeah um talk to me about it um two different drugs let's talk about propofol first what is propofol yeah so um so i guess they're both iv anesthetic agents so the purpose of them is to anesthetize someone Mm -hmm. um i guess in this context particularly um so propofol itself 
is, I don't know, people hear about it because it's what killed Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> um, baby. But, but, you know, that was, I guess, a very extreme circumstance. <laughs> it's so weird how it just got, like, as soon as, never got a name and then Michael Everyone Jackson knows. was like, profile. Everyone okay. knows the one that Michael Ow! Jackson had. <laughs> um, but um, I guess that's what we use routinely. So in theatre, you know, at least nine out of 10 patients, if not 10 out of 10 patients will have their induction with propofol. Um, And then uh, it's rapidly acting. It's a pretty quick offset as well. Uh, It can be anti-emetic a a little bit as well, which is useful. Um, I guess it has ketamine and propofol have a few things that make them more and less useful in different situations. So um, things to note about propofol are it causes pretty profound uh, vasodilation, decreases your systemic vascular resistance and can drop your blood pressure. Um, so that's a biggie. So in anyone yeah. who's sort of shocked, we obviously don't want to use a high dose of propofol because we're just going to tank their blood pressure. Yep. Um the thing that makes it useful, I guess, on the contrary to that, is patients with head injuries, um, propofol decreases your metabolic oxygen requirement in your brain, decreases your cerebral blood flow, so decreases the chance of getting increased ICPs, which you worry about in head injuries. So in patients having neurosurgery or any head injury, then propofol is more useful than ketamine. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I guess they both have their positives and negatives. Yep. Um, propofol can only be used intravenously yep. can't be used im whereas ketamine can um so i guess that brings us to ketamine right dosages of propofol just for oh sure so induction uh one to three milligrams per kilogram cool um depending on i guess the patient and circumstances and things but awesome. that's a ballpark yep. um ketamine useful because as you said it can be used im or iv yep so um like we mentioned with sucks you can do an induction with im ketamine and im sucks yep. which will take a bit longer but is can be done right yep. um ketamine's useful because it is really good analgesic as well which propofol has no analgesic property okay um the other reason we really like ketamine particularly in ed is because it's really hemodynamically stable mm-hmm. so um, it increases your sympathetic outflow Increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure a bit. So you're not going to get that massive tank that you get with propofol. The thing to say about that mm. <laughs> is that it's always a double-edged sword. In patients who are maximally sympathetically uh, driven for whatever reason, given you know their shock or their trauma or whatnot, when they've got their maximal sympathetic outflow already, if we give ketamine, it's actually a myocardial depressant or a negative inotrope. So it can still cause issues in that population as well so i guess it's really useful in ed and we use it a lot of the time but it's important to know that it still can have its negative effects it's not just this miracle drug that we can give to everyone that doesn't cause any problems yeah that's important to know hey yeah because i think when i started i was like oh this ketamine's so good like anyone who's sick just gets heaps of ketamine and they're going to be fine but unfortunately that's not always the case um, and I think, um, yeah, so that's important to know. But as I said, good analgesic, which is really useful, yep. does increase your cerebral blood flow, things like that. So not as useful in patients with head injuries. Yep. What about, um, and we'll go on to ketamine in a second, um, ketamine side effects. We, talk, we talked about them as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, um, the biggest one is going to be like hallucinations, yes. emergence phenomena, things yep. like that. I guess. Um, Laringo spas. 
No, it causes increase in secretions, yep. respiratory secretions, but it's useful because it doesn't suppress your uh, respiratory reflexes as much as Propofol does. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I guess um, much more so than the sucks rock, which I think yep. they're very equivalent drugs. Yep. Ketamine and Propofol are not, and it's very going to be very patient dependent which one's going to be more appropriate. Cool. Um, and what about other agents? I know just quickly, um, you know, I've seen people use fentanyl. Yeah. Um, just for certain analgesic effects, I've also seen midazolam used. Yeah. In seizure patients that were tubing. Yeah. Um, um, I guess they're all, benzos. yeah, so they're all sort of, I guess we'll call them adjuncts yes. for want of a better um, term. Um, we use quite a lot of midazolam electively because um, it's, I guess, has a bit of an amnesic property in that yeah. patients don't necessarily remember everything and it's quite calming patients find it quite relaxing yeah i had my dad's when i when i had the snip and i woke up i was like where the hell am i <laughs> it's so um, it's, a, it's a good one like, whoa that was the best holiday of my life um and all, did I know. <laughs> yeah not quite not no. quite that um <laughs> The medaz and the fentanyl, I guess their best um, use is that they decrease the amount of the other things that you're going to need. So they all work synergistically together. Um, so if you use higher fentanyl, higher midazolam, you might need less propofol, things like that. But I guess in the emergency patient that we need to intubate now, they're probably not going to be things that we'd be reaching for because typically the patients that are tubed in ED are sort of in extremis and things like that that just need a tube. Yeah. quickly right yeah. um and fentanyl is used essentially to blunt sympathetic response what, what's the majority of the difficulty always you get called for is it airway is it anatomy uh i guess i guess anatomy is one i guess sort of circumstance is another so yeah. whether that be a patient with a neck injury in a hard collar or something like that mm-hmm. or um facial injuries or um you know, like mandibular fractures, things like that, potentially, you know, something anatomically that's going to make them more difficult. Um, I guess then there's also patients who are going to be difficult for whatever other reason, whether that be high BMI, COVID, um, you know, patients who are already in respiratory failure and we know we're going to desaturate really quickly. So, we're going to try and get this tube in as quick as we can. So there's such a spectrum, I guess. Um, We get called from the pager for traumas and things like that. So we know what that sort of is going to be. Um, But the stuff that we get called for, for extra help, I guess peds is another one as well. Um, ED, we're going to probably treat most people as if they're unfasted. Yep. What Um, does that mean? Like you say you're unfasted. We know that means that we don't know if they've eaten or something. Yeah. So we don't know if they've eaten or we know when they have eaten. Yes. (laughs) Or... And what does that mean for us? Or anyone, I guess the other people to add into that that category is any trauma we put into the unfasted category. Anyone with a bowel obstruction, even if they haven't eaten. Um, Anyone who's pregnant is by definition unfasted. Um, and anyone who's had high doses of opioid generally, we put in that category as well. What does it mean for us? Well, it means that there are an increased risk of aspiration essentially in a nutshell. So, um, we need to do everything we can to avoid them regurgitating and then aspirating for whatever reason out of those things that we think that that might happen. You can die from being, from aspirating. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, it's a difficult one. I've had I've had a regurgitation. I yeah. guess, um, and in a patient who actually was fasted, 
but unfortunately regurgitated on induction uh, and then subsequently aspirated. So I guess um, it's important that you do all of the normal things, suction, do all of those things. You obviously need to secure the airway at that point in time so that you're able to oxygenate the patient. Um, We get a little bit caught up sometimes on trying to do things to avoid aspiration and subsequently patient can desaturate while we're doing all of those things. So I think we need to make a conscious effort to obviously remember that as well um, and don't sort of take all this time doing, you know, struggling to get an airway in Mm. because you've got cricoid on because you're worried they might aspirate when now they're becoming hypoxic Mm. because ultimately hypoxia is going to be much more dangerous to the patient than a bit of regurgitation. Yeah. And I guess that's one of those things I was saying before. We recognize that it's a risk, but when it happens, it still feels bloody awful. (laughs) So we know it's a risk. And we know it might happen and we know certain patients are more likely to have it than other patients, but when it happens, it still sucks. Yep. So um, you're right. You just suction, put in a tube, crank the oxygen to hundred percent and then take a minute to, you know, breathe, breathe yep. and then, and then reassess and work out what you're going to do from there. I guess to raise, like you said then, like cricoid, I know, like it's yeah. like that we talk about yep. and EDs are like, nah, we don't use it. Yeah. Um, and it's still used, cricoid pressure? So cricoid essentially is just obviously pressure over cricoid yep. with the purpose that it's going to compress back on esophagus and, pre- and prevent regurgitation yep. is why we're doing it. I guess if you're going to use do a traditional rapid sequence induction, yep. that involves cricoid. Okay. Um, so... Lots of people do and lots of people don't. And this is one of those things. Has it been proven to do anything? Mm. Well, I don't think really it has. Mm. I don't think there's any sort of super strong evidence to suggest that it's better than not doing it. Theoretically, in my mind, that's still doing something. Um, So I would still do it. However, if I'm finding the airway difficult, then cricoid comes off. Yeah, Yeah. it's not, you know, it's... It's sort of one of those things. It's a nice gesture and yes. we'll do it because we can and yep. why not, right? Um, yep. But if it's a hindrance, then it Correct. goes. Um, run me through it. We talked about a high BMI. Let's talk about a high BMI. Yeah, run me through a case. high BMI you, tricky. You, you've had a recent patient. It's all de-identified, but you've had yeah. a recent patient who was had yeah. a high BMI. Yeah. Talk to me what happened. Really high BMI. Um, it was the middle of the night as these patients always typically present when yep. you're in the hospital by yourself um so i was in the hospital a high bmi patient came in i was called to ed to assist um patient was in respiratory failure query covid high bmi so you know ticking all the boxes for being difficult right <laughs> um and i'm getting I, worried already oh, i'm already worried that. so I'm i got to worried. ed and um and the patient was actually much bigger than i had expected okay and bmi is a nice way to say the patient was very morbidly obese mm, yeah yeah so yeah. well and truly over or easy over 150 easy yeah um and i saw the patient and realized that i was going to need help yep um, so there was an ED reg, there was an e- a couple of ED nurses in there, I think. And then I had arrived mm-hmm. and obviously query COVID. So I was outside the room just looking in um, and I knew I was going to need help because it was going to be difficult. So I phoned the anesthetic nurse who was in theatres and asked her to come and help me um, because I know her, she knows me. 
it was going to be difficult anyway. Mm. We might as well have as much familiarity as we possibly could. Um, so she came down and she bought with her a few things that, mm. I, that we'd talked about mm. and asked for. So yeah. she brought down our C-Mac yep. because I'm used to our C-Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> um, it's good. And she bought down a ramp, which is essentially a, a foam ramp yep. um, that we were able to position the patient on, which just meant that um, they're a little bit more head up, yeah. I guess, um, which helps, I guess, move a bit of the weight off off the diaphragm and, and able to help us ventilate a little bit, though recognising that it was still going to be quite, quite challenging. Okay. Um, and I called my boss because why not? Yeah, what, yeah, <laughs> like, we're all in this together and I was going to need help. It was going to be hard. Yep. For a mul- like for multiple reasons, yeah. you're in full PPE. You don't know anyone. You don't work it's down in ED. Query yeah. COVID. Like there's just so many things that were just like this doesn't feel right. Yeah. So we're gonna get more help. Anyway, all's well that ends well. The patient was successfully intubated, but um, with a video laryngoscope. Interestingly, literature and the data suggest that actually patients who are high BMI are not a more difficult airway than patients who aren't. Um, I guess it's just the ventilation, the pre-oxygenation and the, and you know, the situation that potentially makes it more difficult, but their airway anatomy is not necessarily any more difficult than, than ours. Interesting. Hey, yeah. Which I, I wouldn't have probably thought that. No. Um, but I've, I've recently done a journal club about something similar. So I'd read some literature about it and yeah. Um, we routinely use video laryngoscopy more routinely in patients who are high BMI yep. because we anticipate a difficult airway, but in reality, it's it's not more common. No. Yeah. And I think sometimes it can just, like you said before, it could even be just putting a bag over their face and because they're so heavy, like just getting a seal. Difficult can to get a seal, yeah. It can sometimes need two people just to get a seal on them when they're really, really big. Yeah, um, it's it's difficult. And I guess you, you spoke before about Gadells and things, and I think that's the population Gadells are really useful for. Yeah. Um, putting one of those in while you're, you're bag masking, obviously patients aren't going to tolerate that when yeah. they're awake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not <laughs> I, well. I wish. <laughs> um, but that can be really useful just cool. to help get the, you know, the tongue out of the way a little yeah. bit and help yeah. you help you oxygenate a bit better um the other thing to say is pre-oxygenation with some positive pressure yep. can also be really useful yeah, cool. in high bmi patients as well that's good because um, we i mean it's funny with covid hey we've seen such a flip from covid with like being able to do we pre-oxygenate do we it's use hard any to pressure know, isn't it? yeah um you know from yeah. everything being off to letting it become hypoxic to now where are your ppe play ball yeah i think when covid first happened i guess we were all much much more cautious and there were we had very strict um, protocol and things that we were following in terms of airways i think i came i think i was down there with you one day with a covid COVID intubation i think miming through the door at each other um Um, oh my goodness you recognize it was you um but but i think now that we're seeing so many more potential you know not even covid positive but potential or close contacts or whatever i guess we're not more relaxed in that we're still in all the ppe it's still hard we're still you know but i think um we've sort of realized that maybe all the little nitpicky things that we did initially aren't really gonna be able to happen so much anymore um 
And I think the I like the ramping. I've seen people ramp with a ramp or ramp with ten towels, um, blankets, pillows, or towels. Yeah, whatever you've got. Um, that face probably you know, face up or, yep. or either sit or notch all those things that you mentioned before, which are really helpful to run through. And they're on checklists as well. Yeah, I yep. think um, I'm quite vertically challenged. Yes. So it can be difficult in ED. The beds don't go down very low. No. Is the first thing to say. And then you're going to ramp a patient who's already quite big. So they're going to be well and truly above where I yep. can see. Vertically challenged, yes. <laughs> You've already called me short today. So. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, but I think the <clears throat> next thing that's important is to get yourself into a good position. Yes. Because you're not going to be able to put a tube in someone that you can't see. No. Um, so for this particular patient, I had like a stool yeah. and everything so that I was, you know, king of the castle. But um, because otherwise it would have been impossible. So I guess don't put yourself in a position that you're not comfortable in yep. or don't try and do something from sort of a half-assed, you know, perspective because it's just not going to work. Your yep. first shot's your best shot. So I love it. Yeah. But for example, I've been to ED once um, for, you know, quite like a horrible scenario, but the patient was on a Lucas. Yeah. And was quite a big person and query COVID. Yep. And so Lucas it was just does manual CPR for people out there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, um, and, and I got there and the patient was to be intubated and they were halfway down the bed, a big person on a Lucas. Yep. And I thought, that there's no chance of this going in. Yep. <laughs> so I got everyone in the room to grab a side so that we could shift the patient up the bed yep. so their head was at me yep. because what was what was the point of trying yeah. you know when you you know like you're setting yourself up for a fail yeah i like that hey that, that little bit of extra time just to analyze the situation say i need them in a better position yeah can mean the difference between intubating and not intubating yeah exactly or success and failure yeah it's that time before you know it's all in it's all in the preparation yeah. i actually um yeah, I, I really think that you just need to take a minute and get things how you want them. And mm. whether that be positioning the patient or whether it be, uh, I'm a bit OCD, whether it be setting all your stuff up in the order that you're going to have it or whatever yeah. it is, I think just take a minute and get it all sorted because if you don't do it and you're stressed and as we said, your cognitive load is all over the place, yeah. it's just it, it's just not going to end well, you know? Like you just, you're not giving yourself the best shot. Yeah. A surgical airway is something that happened. Just a quick, quick, quick. I look. I've seen. I've seen one. Yeah. Um, which was sort of, I guess, an extreme case in that the patient had had some throat and base of tongue um, operation. Yeah. Um, not commonly. Yeah. I guess is is what to say. It's sort of the thing that we all prepare for, yeah. and we all do so many drills and sims and stuff on, so that we're all ready if it ever happened. But. I hope it never happens. Yeah, okay. Um, and apart from that one that actually ended up being done by a head and neck surgeon rather than uh, than, than any of us, um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's that thing that you prepare for but you hope never comes. Okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's <laughs> you like, make sure you know where the kit is and yeah. you know all the stuff but you and just pray that you never get to that point. Yep. Yeah, I so we call it sort of like a, a can't intubate, can't oxygenate situation. So for whatever reason you know you're unable to do that from the mouth or you know from the top end as Mm. we'll call it um then you need an alternate plan which tends to be front of neck access um which which is very uncommon but we you know you have to be aware that you've got that up your belt if you ever need to do it yeah i like i like the and with covid anything else that's changed recently with covid that you've 
I like how you said it's become more not relaxed, but in senses which it's it's um, evolving. It is evolving. I think yep. it's I think it's evolving. I think um, I guess the major things that are different are you're obviously in a lot of PPE. Yeah. Which just makes it hard, right? It's just it's uncomfortable. It's yep. hot. Mm. It's hard. It's difficult to communicate. Um, so that's the first thing. I guess you're just trying to minimalize aerosolation, right? Yeah. Because you, you just don't want it spraying around, yeah. uh, which might mean turn down your gas flows, yeah. don't bag the patient, all of those types of things. I guess in ED, we're doing rapid sequence anyway, so yeah. we're probably not going to be bagging them. Yeah. Um, but just, I guess, being mindful of, of what you're doing. and um, I To begin with, there was a lot more that we were doing, you know, yeah. with stopping things and clamping tubes and unclamping. And I guess to an extent you still, we can still do that if you want, but yeah. in ED, your main priority is safely secure an airway for yeah, the patient absolutely. and providing you've got your PPE on, I think you should be pretty yeah, safe. Yeah. The, the difficult times, I guess, are the times that you, you're going to a patient who potentially is, COVID or yep. you know has COVID yep. and and they've had you know uh, some type of catastrophic event and you find yourself standing out the front of the room trying to quickly put your PPE on before you can go in you know I think that's the thing that for all of us feels a little bit odd it that does. you're standing out the front like normally we would obviously just run in we but, do. but the safety I guess for the broader picture is that we all need to protect ourselves mm. as well so that we're able to keep going to work 100%. um so that's the thing i guess it feels a bit funny um what would be your advice to people that want to do anesthetics or want to know more about anesthetics yeah i guess um i i never thought i wanted to be an anesthetist yep um until i did anesthetics what did you love about it uh oh everything okay. <laughs> um, yeah. no i i always knew i wanted to do critical care yeah. i thought that was ed yeah um and then i did icu and i thought maybe icu it's was like more my thing yeah and then I did aesthetics and I was like, no, this is definitely cool. it. Um, I like doing procedures. Mm. Uh, I like, I guess that's a biggie. I really like procedures. I find physiology really interesting. Yeah. I never liked pharmacology okay. at med school. So uh, that surprised me that I ended up here a little bit from that perspective. Um, but I, I love the job. I think yeah. we're super lucky that we get to do what we do. Um, you know, even when we, you hear us whinging about getting woken in the middle of the night to go and do epidurals, I think, you know, it's, it's a pretty nice position to be in that you can walk into a room with someone so unhappy and uncomfortable and leave with them being really comfortable yeah. and thankful. Um, so they're, they're sort of the things that I love. Um, I love working in a team, yeah. I guess. Like we're always, we're always in a team, yeah. whether that be surgeons, anesthetic nurses, you know, the works, we're always in a team. I think that's always really fun. Yeah. I like that. I wouldn't like to be on my own no, <laughs> with my own thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're the things that I liked about it. Um, and, and I did it as an SRMO year um, after my residency yeah. and I fell in love with it. Cool. Um, and then it's a bit tricky sometimes to get a position because like every medical specialty, there's just not heaps of positions around. Like you're on the program. I don't think people realize getting on the program is a big deal in terms of just positions. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, sometimes it's just a bit of a, you just sometimes need to bide your time a little yeah, bit yeah. And, and do some other things, whether that be clinical experience or research or courses or whatever you decide is more up your alley. Yeah. Um, and then, and then when you get onto training, you get all the 
all the fun stuff like the exams and whatnot. Um, for the people who, who think they want to do anesthetics, I guess just get some experience doing it. However that looks, whether that be as a med student, as a, a resident, as a SRMO, whatever that be. Um, I think when I started as a junior doctor, I spent all my time doing placements that I didn't like. Yeah. And I thought, what's going to happen when I get to the end of this and I've done 15 placements and I've hated them all? Yeah. Like, what am I actually going to do? Yeah. But I think at the time I thought that was really counterproductive, just mm. crossing things off. Yeah. And then I found that actually it was really useful because you found the things that you didn't want to do, mm. which meant you were closer to finding something that you did. Love it. That's really yeah. cool. Isn't that good? You yeah, know, you just say you don't like it and you go, tick it off, I'm not doing that again. Absolutely. But I think at the time you're like, Oh, Take I that. don't like this and I don't like this and I like what, what am I gonna like? What yeah. am I like what what am I gonna do? But I think you just need to keep trying stuff cool. until you find your thing. And everyone finds their thing eventually. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, resources for people. So what would you Ooh. say? What to go to as an anesthetic doctor or even for anesthetic nurses? What to go to that you think's worth a read? Um, I guess online, Life in the Fast Lane, which is an ED, um, you know, driven website is great for everything, (laughs) Um, for drugs, for emergencies, for like I had a a thing up before about laryngoscopy, like they've got everything. I think it's really useful in terms of physiology. There's a a website called deranged physiology, which is really good. Uh, And I think that's an ICU, um, yeah. a based website as well yeah, i'll put some links in the show notes for that yeah yeah um once i guess books and things are all a bit heavy yeah, yeah <laughs> you are. know it's difficult to and i found it really difficult when i started to find something that was appropriate for someone who thought they might like it but weren't quite sure i yeah. think that the all the resources that we have are pretty pretty heavy but i think they're really good online uh resources as i said the life in the fast lane has lots of drug stuff as well so that's probably where i'd start yeah. uh, and then once you get onto training then there's lots of resources then that are really really good and yeah. appropriate but i think before you get there it's probably just worth having a general you know mm. read around and yeah that's it thanks you <laughs> Done. that's a wrap for another week of the edgm podcast remember to follow me at edgm underscore podcast on instagram Um, Also remember that any advice on the EDGM should not be taken over your local medical practitioner. Thanks Mads for an awesome episode. If you want to find more information, check out the show notes. Remember to subscribe and look at um, iTunes and Spotify where you can see all the episodes. Um, Shoot me a message as well on Insta and I'll reply. Have a great week. Yoop!